Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Our text this morning will be the first five verses of the chapter. As you're turning, I just was sitting on the platform reflecting on the fact. Sometimes we talk in church circles about blended worship. Uh, I don't know if you notice, but actually... Our service has actually been remarkably blended. Um, we sang a song that had a text from the 16th century. The scripture and praise came from the Strasbourg Psalter, uh, 1545. Um, the opening hymn uh, was Isaac Watts, of course, early 18th century. Uh, we're going to close with Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus, which is late 19th century. We're going to sing How Deep the Father's Love for Us. That's 21st century. We just had a spiritual um, that's a pretty remarkable uh, breadth in terms of what we are doing this morning. And it just reminds me, and I wanted to kind of say this out loud, one of the things that James and I talk about a lot each Tuesday as we play in worship is we want the whole 2,000 years, right? Uh, the Christian tradition lasts for 2,000 years. There have been people who have been singing and praising and have been reading the Bible and preaching and administering the sacraments and for 2,000 years. And I want the whole deal. Um, I don't want to limit myself to 50 years or to 100 years or 250 years. Uh, we, we want to see this kind of breadth in what we do week by week to be formed by the same faith that God's people have been formed by uh, throughout the millennia now. And that's exactly what Jesus prays for uh, in this prayer that some call the, the high priestly prayer. Um, as I'm going to say in a minute, I I tend to prefer the language of calling this the farewell prayer, um, but it is in the sense that Jesus is praying not just for himself, but for his people, um, his disciples. But as we'll see in a couple weeks, he also prays for us. He, he looks ahead 2,000 years and he prays for you and me. Um, we'll see that in a couple of weeks. This morning, we're going to look at particularly that Jesus praying for himself. Um, I don't know about you, but my prayer times many days, um, I pray a lot for myself. Um, what does Jesus pray for when he prays for himself? Um, I have to confess it's a little different sometimes than what I pray for, uh, but we're going to need to be shaped by Jesus's own praying this morning. But in order for that to happen, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Once again, Father, we come to you through Jesus by the Spirit, and we ask that you would come and you would particularly grant your Spirit to accompany his Word, so that together, Spirit and Word might work together to conform us to the very image of Christ. Indeed, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes of faith this morning, that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, 
Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So every man desireth good people at the time of their deaths to give some good exhortation that others may remember after their death and be better thereby. So I beseech God grant me grace that I may speak something at this my departing whereby God may be glorified and you edified. Well, that's obviously not Sean Lucas. That's Thomas Cramner, Archbishop of Canterbury, And that's what he told the crowd as he was strapped to a pole in the midst of a pyre that was about ready to be set on fire at the order of Bloody Mary Tudor, Queen of England. Cramner's last words have continued to ring throughout history so that over and again people have come to try to understand what was he saying? Why was it important? Why did he say that at that moments. We're fascinated about last words, the last words that men and women might say as they approach their dying hours. We believe that there's something significant in those final things they might tell us, some kind of insight into the meaning of life uh, or the faithfulness of God or even the futility of sinfulness. We believe that last final words They're important. They can give us hope and security and and memory that enables us to move forward in our callings in the present. Our text this morning, here in in John 17, this this final prayer that Jesus prays represents a, a kind of last words. To be sure, Jesus will say a few other things that the disciples will be hearing, but they'll all be under duress all in the conflict of the moment as, as Judas and the, and the authorities come to arrest Jesus. But here, in the last unhurried moments in the upper room before they cross the Kidron Valley and make their way to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, here are Jesus' final words that cap off his, his farewell discourse in the upper room. We've been looking at that over several months now the upper room discourse that began back in John chapter 13 when Jesus washed his disciples' feet and properly came to a conclusion in the text we looked at last time. Here, Jesus prays. And this this prayer that's often known as the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, there are books with that title that are expositions of this chapter. It might be better known as, I've already suggested, as the farewell prayer because it so wonderfully summarizes all that Jesus has said before, but but it should also be called the farewell prayer because it contains such elements of of pathos, of of emotion, as, as Jesus comes to the hour finally, just a few short hours after praying this, Jesus will be nailed to the cross. A few short days after this, he'll be raised from the dead. 40 days later, he shall be ascending back to the Father. What will Jesus pray in these moments? Facing crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. Well, he's praying that this road he is on might bring glory to the Father. And that that the Son might bring 
glory to the Father himself. He prays that his followers would be protected in the aftermath of his death and, and exaltation. And that his followers would know his glory. Not just his immediate followers, but you and me. Two millennia later, that we would know his glory. Again, this prayer is for more ears than just the Father's prayer. For, for the Father's ears. This prayer is also for the disciples' ears. They needed to hear Jesus pray these things. They needed to hear Jesus pray that, that his glory would return to him. They needed to hear Jesus pray for them. They needed to hear all of that so that they might remember when they saw Jesus' limp body on the cross. They needed to hear this so that they might remember when Judas comes with, with the, the authorities, with their clubs and spears and, and torches to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And above all, they needed to hear so that they might remember because, of course, they were prone to wander, prone to doubt, prone to attack, and prone to fear. And friends, that's why we need to hear Jesus praying these words. You and I, today, right now, we need to hear Jesus pray so that we might remember. Because, of course, we're prone to wander, and we're prone to doubt. You and I, we're prone to attack, and we are so prone to fear. And we need to be reminded once again about Jesus' own destiny, namely glory, but also about our destiny to share in his glory, to know and to see his glory. We need to be reminded once again about the protection afforded by Jesus' own name and be reminded of his joy that he gives to us his truth, his spirit that he sends to us. This, this farewell prayer in chapter 17, it has three movements. Jesus prays for himself in verses 1 to 5. Jesus prays for his disciples in verses 6 to 19. And Jesus prays for us, for you and me, in verses 20 to 26. This morning, we'll look at that first movement Jesus praying for himself in the first five verses that we've read together. And so what is it that Jesus prays for? He prays for two things. He prays that the Father would glorify the Son. And he prays that the Son would glorify the Father. So first, what does Jesus pray for when he prays for himself? Jesus prays that the Father would glorify the Son. That, that's where Jesus begins. You see it in verse 1. When Jesus has spoken these words... He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Glorify your son. What does that mean? How, how can Jesus ask the father to glorify him? Isn't that kind of a selfish prayer? I mean, if you and I prayed, God, Father, please glorify me. Let me have glory. We, we would rightly see that as a selfish prayer. Isn't this a selfish prayer? A, a low prayer for Jesus to pray? A base prayer for Jesus to pray? Well, not at all. No, actually, this prayer is not the lowest prayer that Jesus could pray, but actually the highest prayer 
Because in praying this prayer, Father, glorify the Son, he's praying in line with the very purpose of creation. Here at IPC, we we teach our children that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But of course, it's equally the case, as John Piper pointed out, that God's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. And so if that's God's highest end, and if our highest end is to glorify God, then it would make sense to say that we find our highest end in being conformed to God's highest end. And so when Jesus prays, glorify the Son, he's actually praying in line with God's own purpose in his world. If God's own purpose in his world is to glorify himself, and if Jesus is in fact the Son of God, God himself, then when Jesus prays, God glorify God, he's praying in line with the very purpose of creation. But when Jesus prays this, he, he prays it this in such a way that he reaches back to the past, reaches forward to the future so that he might have strength in the present. Notice that when Jesus prays, Father, glorify the Son, he, he prays in such a way as to recall the, the glory that he had in the, in the past. Notice in verse 5, Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Glorify me with the glory that I had before time began, before in the beginning. Glorify me with that glory. You hear an echo here of what the Apostle Paul will say in Philippians chapter 2, that though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Other translations have it glory as something to be grasped. Jesus doesn't grasp hold of his glory, but he had every right to do so because before time began, Jesus was, is the eternal son of God, eternally existent, and back in that eternal past, Jesus knew glory. Before the foundation of the world, before let there be light, The son enjoyed the light of the glory of God. He enjoyed excellence and beauty and magnificence, the very character of the triune God, because of course he is God. He shares fully in the being of God, fully in the essence of that God. He shares fully in the same delight, fully in the same enjoyment. And so as the preexistent son of God, when the son became man, we have this testimony. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his Glory. Glory is the one and only of the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld his glory. How could we be held? How could it be possible that the disciples beheld Jesus' glory? It's because he always had that glory. As the eternal Son of God, he had it from eternity past. And Jesus is asking, Father, glorify the Son with the same glory that I had before time began, the glory that I had in the past. And he prays that that glory would be restored so that he might enjoy it into eternity future. Jesus has in mind here his return to the Father, which of course has shaped all that Jesus has said throughout this farewell discourse, really since the very first verse of John chapter 13. You and I knew from that moment, as John recorded it, that Jesus was returning to the Father. 
And throughout, he's, he's trying to help his disciples as they grieve that fact that, that I must return to the Father. Where I'm going, you cannot come now, but you will follow after, and so forth. And so it is here, as Jesus says in verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. Glorify me in your own presence. Jesus is looking beyond the suffering of the cross, beyond the the, the, the pain and anguish that's just in the offing. He looks beyond the, the shame that's attached to dying on that cursed tree. He looks beyond it to the joy that's set before him. And what is the joy? What's the joy of resurrection and exaltation and above all ascension so that he might once again know the glory of the Father fully. He would know it in his presence in the eternal future that is his. Friends, that's crucial for us. Our faith does not rest simply or merely on the fact that Jesus was crucified. Our faith does not rest simply on the humiliation of his suffering. The cross that I have behind me does not have the body of Jesus upon it, as in other denominational traditions. Why? Because Jesus didn't stay on the cross. And our faith doesn't center on the dying man on the cross. It centers on the dying man on the cross who was raised from the dead. Who was vindicated as exactly who he claimed to be. The son of God and the savior of sinners and the Lord of all. The apostle Paul makes that point in the very first verses of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, he tells us that our faith is in God's son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared or vindicated to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, how? By his resurrection from the dead. And so in Jesus' resurrection, we have this vindication that he was exactly who he claimed to be, but also an expectation that there's coming a day when every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory, to the glory of God the Father, but also to the glory of God the Son. And that day the praises will roll over and over again, confessing Jesus to be the true King of the world, vindicated as Son of God and Savior of sinners and Lord of all, over and again, hallelujah, hallelujah, praise the Lord, He is our Savior, He is our King. That's our expectation. That's what Jesus is praying for here. Father, glorify the Son with the same glory that I had in the past so that it might redound to all eternity future. But in order to get there, Jesus had to go through the present. And even here, even as he's praying, Father, glorify the Son with the same glory that I had in the past. Glorify me in your presence the cross looms over the prayer. It begins how? Verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son. The hour has come. We've seen that language of the hour through John's gospel. What is the hour? It's the hour of crucifixion. And indeed, the hour is now mere minutes away. When this prayer is over, they will cross the Kidron Valley. They will make their way up the Mount of Olives. They will enter into Gethsemane. They will pray there. And then Judas will come in the process of Jesus bearing the condemnation that really was ours, not his, 
would begin. By nine o'clock in the morning on Good Friday, he would be nailed on the cross, hung between heaven and earth. The hour has come. Jesus' betrayal and death is actually the pathway to glory. Jesus had to go through the present, had had to go through the cross. What's striking here is when Jesus says the hour has come, he actually views all of the work he's about to do as accomplished. Look at verse 4. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, in the strictest sense, that's not exactly true, is it? I mean, the work that Jesus had come to do was still a few hours off, dying for the sins of his people. But from Jesus' view, it was as good as accomplished. It was already done in his mind. He was prepared to go through the present to the cross in order to accomplish salvation for his people so that in dying for our sins and being raised for our justification, having viewed it all complete, Jesus can say, the present is accomplished. All that is necessary for the salvation of my people is completed. Glorify, Father, your Son. Friends, that's, that's, that's the holy gospel that we've already professed this morning in the statement of faith. That, that, that God's purpose of glorifying himself did not, would not, and could not fail. The entire purpose of salvation that stretches back to paradise when, when God speaks the curse upon the serpent and tells him there's coming a warrior child who will crush your head all the way to the cross and the empty tomb. All that God had purposed was accomplished and accomplished for your salvation which means we don't look to what we do. We don't look to the works of our hands. We don't look to the, the, our abilities and our brilliance. We don't look to our theological knowledge. No, we look to the work of Jesus Christ. And so even now, praise him and glorify him for what he has done for us. That's what the hymn writer said. One of my favorite, Horatio Bonar, not what my, work, my hands have done can save my guilty soul, not what my toiling flesh is born, can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. No, thy work alone, O Christ, can can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Friends, that's your hope this morning, is that the Father glorifies the Son with the very glory he had in the past that he knows now and will know for all eternity future because of the work he did in this present hour of dying on the cross for your sins and being raised for your justification. But notice, that's not all Jesus prays here. He not only prays that the Father would glorify the Son, But he also prays that the Son would glorify the Father. That's the rest of verse 1, isn't it? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Once again, 
There's this movement from God, through God, to God. This profoundly Trinitarian movement where the Father glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father. The Spirit is the Spirit of glory between and betwixt. And so we have here a, a profoundly Trinitarian prayer. But the Son is asking here that the Son might glorify the Father with this radically God-centered prayer. How is he going to do this? How would the Son glorify the Father? Well, Jesus tells us it's through the use of the Father's authority. Father, the hour has come. Verse 1, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh. Even now, as we've seen throughout this gospel, but even now, a few short hours from the moment of Jesus' apparent weakness... Jesus is rightly claiming to have authority over all flesh, over every single human being that's ever lived, whether in Memphis or uh, Mozambique, whether in Texas or Tanzania, whether in China or Chicago, it doesn't matter. Jesus claims all authority over all flesh, which means there's not a man or a woman or a boy and girl who doesn't have something to do with Jesus. There's not a single person on the face of this planet that doesn't have something to do with Jesus. They may deny him. They may reject him. They may ignore him. They may, may avoid the radio stations even in, in the farthest places of the world where the gospel is being preached. They may avoid all of that to seek to, to press the truth and unrighteousness. But listen to me. There's not a single person on the face of this planet who doesn't have something to do with Jesus. And especially something to do with his authority to judge. We've seen that already. In John chapter 5, Jesus said that that the authority to judge had been given to the Son. That the Son was the one who exercised judgment over all flesh. And so there will come a day where there's the separation between the sheep and the goats, between those who profess to love Jesus and those who reject him, to those who follow in Jesus' way and those who avoid him. There will come a judgment day. Which means you have to reckon with Jesus. You have something to do with him. Will you believe him? Will you obey him? Or will you not? There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. You might think there's middle ground as you try to finesse and weave and bob your way. No, there's no middle ground. Will you trust in Jesus? Will you obey him? Or will you not? How can Jesus demand that? Because he has all authority. The Father has given him all authority over all flesh. And the ultimate purpose of this authority has to do with eternity. That's the rest of verse 2. Did you see it? Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Eternal life. It has to do with eternity. It's not simply future life. Nor is it simply life that goes on and on, a never-ending life. No, by eternal life, Jesus means something remarkable. Namely, the life that partakes of the very glory of God. The life of the age to come. He says, I've, given, I've been given authority so that I might grant eternal life. I might grant a taste of my glory now that goes on and on. 
into the life of the age to come. I've, I've been given authority to give that to those who trust in me. Friends, don't you see that God's great purpose in granting Jesus authority is that your end, man's chief end, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, might merge with his great end, which is to glorify himself. But how is it that your purpose for which you were made, which is to glorify God, how, does, how is it possible for that to meet up with God's purpose, that, that God might glorify himself and enjoy him forever? How do those two meet? Friends, it meets right here. It meets right here that you might know him. And in knowing this God through Jesus Christ, you might have this, this eternal life, this life that actually is glory. That's what Jesus says. And this is eternal life, verse 3. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's, that's Jesus' purpose. That, that you might know eternal life. That you might, might gain this life that is glory. That your purpose might match up with God's purpose. Might merge so that you might glorify and enjoy God forever. And that God might glorify and enjoy God forever. But how does that happen? By knowing him. By knowing this God through Jesus the Messiah. But friends, this knowing, it's not simply apprehension. It's not simply having a, a series of well-organized facts. It's not simply memorizing the catechism and being able to recite it. It's not, not about simply mastering great works of theology. When Jesus talks about knowing here, it's an intimate kind of knowing that, that ultimately has its, at its basis persuasion. A persuasion that leads to a well-founded trust. I wonder if you're persuaded this morning. Persuaded that the glory of God is displayed in Jesus Christ. Persuaded that Jesus died for sinners like you. That Jesus was vindicated by his resurrection from the dead as exactly who he claimed to be. Son of God, Savior of sinners, Lord of all. Are you persuaded that Jesus is the only way to the Father? Are you persuaded that the only way to live life in this world is to center your entire existence around Jesus so that what he says is what you will do? Are you persuaded? Because that's what it means to know him. This kind of knowledge doesn't simply flit around in the brain. It takes root in the heart and changes your life. It moves us to establish our complete happiness in God. Establish our complete happiness in God. It accomplishes God's chief end for us. As we know this God through Jesus by the Spirit, we glorify and enjoy him forever. In the same way as God glorifies himself and enjoys himself forever. And we come to pray Jesus' own prayer for us. We take his prayer as our own. When we pray, Father, glorify your Son, so that the Son might glorify the Father through us. That's how the Son does it. That's how the Son glorifies the Father. He does so through us, through me, and through you. Are you able to pray that prayer? Father, glorify the Son through me. Will you pray that prayer this morning? May God make it so.
Would you pray with me, please? Father, we stand amazed at this kind of praying that the Father would glorify the Son so that the Son might glorify the Father through us. But Lord, we know that this was your eternal purpose and it was born out of your great love for us. We are so prone to forget how loved we are that you would go to such lengths for us. Lord, as we prepare to come to your table this morning, remind us yet again, persuade us yet again, stir us once again, transform us and change us once again so that we might have our purpose aligned with yours, which is to bring glory to you, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.